The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. February 18th, 2024, The Dangers of Discontentment, Part 4. I hit the record unpause button, so we need to get moving. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for another day and another opportunity to dive into your word, to learn more about you and and talk about this issue of discontentment. I just ask that you would bless our conversation, that it might be productive today, uh, that we might be able to apply what we learn and and move forward and and help others who are struggling in this area, because that's ultimately why we're here, is to be able to apply what uh, truths you have for us, that we might be able to be an agent, if you will, of of, uh, sanctification by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. That's our desire, that's our heart, to help others to grow individually and and corporately. So I just ask that you would help us to that end, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the question then I'm going to open with, we have a lot of material to get through, is, is what is the goal of secular therapy? What is the purpose of secular therapy? Healing. Healing, okay. Can you maybe maybe expand on that a little more? Make them have no longer have the issue they're dealing with, right? Yeah. And, and, the, and the goal of, in, in that is to do it as fast as possible, right? They want to, they want, when you go to secular therapy, your goal is to get better. We'll put quotes around that word, right. scare quotes, as fast as possible. Because the, the, the counselee's contentment and their happiness is more important than anything else. It's more important, certainly, than growing in godliness and character. Because from their perspective, there's no purpose to the pain. Right? There's absolutely no purpose to the pain. It's to be escaped at all costs and as quickly as possible. So secular treatments for what biblical counselors would call hot issues focus on avoiding situations that might cause dissonance or emotional pain, avoiding painful situations and difficult people that might cause conflict or inner conflict, and escaping those situations when ensnared in them. And so you go to counseling, you go to therapy in order to get better as fast as possible. And so to that end, treatments for chronic conditions lean on avoidance, medication, and cognitive behavioral techniques to change or redirect negative thinking. Makes sense? The goal of secular therapy is to feel good again. The solution, therefore, is to make whatever changes are necessary in our environment, our relationships, our thought processes, and or our biology in order to ensure that satisfaction. That's why divorce is so, so prevalent, because we want to escape whatever discomfort we might have in our marriages, for example. Obstacles to contentment must be identified and removed from the counselee's life, or, or their perspective must be changed such that they can accept their difficulties. That was living proof with my daughter and son-in-law, because they went through 10 years of therapy, and it was secular. Yeah. And so he said at the beginning, my son-in-law, if you don't change, I'm out of here. And 10 years later... Well, eight years later, he left. It's a fundamental problem with his outlook, right? It's a fundamental problem with the way he's looking at the situation. He figured my daughter was his problem, so he left. Yeah. Whereas we, we know that we start with the, with, the, with the assumption that we are our own worst problem, and we start from there, and we work from that, that position, right? I, I might have conflict in my marriage. I might go to a biblical counselor individually because my wife doesn't want to come with me. This is purely an illustration. doesn't apply in my marriage. But... <laughs> A good biblical counselor is going to start with me and work with me yeah. and my issues um, 
Because I, they have no control over what my wife may or may not do. I have no control over what my wife may or may not do. But I do have control, some control over myself and, what I, and, and my response to my wife and, and, and how, I, how I respond to her. A counselee, they say, will need to change their attitude, their perspective, to take some kind of positive action and do something that gives life meaning. So, and I, look, I looked up, when I was writing my dissertation on discontentment, I looked up secular treatments for discontentment. It is a big issue, and as you can imagine, if we all struggle with it, and certainly the, the people outside of the church struggle with it, and, and these you know, uh, psychiatrists, psychiatric institutions, organizations, they, they all advocate engaging in Zen-focused activities, Zen-focused religions, certainly not Christianity, I suspect, but, but Buddhism and those kinds of religions that focus on, on finding an inner peace and inner calm, uh, learning to relax through mental exercises, deep breathing, yoga, uh, reframing circumstances the way they understand their circumstances, indulging in peace-enhancing pastimes, again, like yoga, meditation, exercise, um, and in more serious cases, medication may be prescribed as a solution to their discontentment or their anger or their depression or whatever it might be. That doesn't sound so bad necessarily because those are all things that we can do too to help us, not engaging in Zen religions, but, but engaging in things that help us to, to look for that inner calm and to, and to just kind of ratchet it down a little bit. But biblical counseling focuses on hot issues and what God's Word says about those problems stressors and difficulties and not random events that come into our lives that are to be avoided at all costs. That's a major difference between a secular counselor and a biblical counselor. God is at work. We believe that. We start there, and then we try and figure out what what it is that's preventing the counselee from growing or even embracing God's redemptive work in their life. So the common thread that's coursed its way through the issues of discontentment, anger, bitterness is a faulty view of God's sovereignty. That's why we spent so much time at the beginning of these classes talking about God's sovereignty and his sovereign control, his sovereign care for us. Identifying that thread enables us to address the disbelief behind the counselee's sin directly. The goal of, uh, is to make the, the put off and put on process, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. Uh, less intimidating for the counselee, and to make it easier, frankly, for the biblical counselor to create a plan to help that counselee to grow. That's why God has very kindly given us this, this outline in his word of how we are to address soul care issues. He's made it really clear in the word how to do that in order to help a counselee. We, we don't eagerly search for difficulties that cause us problems. We don't want to spend our entire lives camped out in those problems. We want to get past those problems. We want to do it in a way that honors God and is a, is a sanctifying and God-glorifying activity, right? So the issues we've been addressing in this class all begin in the heart. Our yearning for something else, something more, something different, drives us into discontentment. And that discontentment then leads to anger and bitterness when we fail to address those heart-level sins. Jesus declared in Matthew 12, 34, that the mouth speaks out what is already in the heart. Right? It's already there. You know, it's, it, when you say to your spouse, well, you make me so angry, you know that's a lie. It's not true. You're already angry. It's just your husband is giving you an opportunity to, to bring forth the sin that's already in your heart. <coughs> Circumstances give us opportunity to express what's already there. It's important to remember, though, that external events don't cause our sin. They only serve to exacerbate the sin or give us opportunity to express it. 
And since the sin begins in the heart, the counseling for that sin must therefore also begin and focus on the heart. Unlike secular counseling, where the goal is simply to eradicate, escape that pain at all costs, our goal is to work with the heart to see what's going on in the heart and help that counseling understand that better and to grow through it. We can address behavioral issues, of course, but those behavioral issues are subordinated to heart problems. The behavioral issue is what the mouth is speaking out, but the heart issue is where the sin resides, and that's where we have to focus our attention. So the basis of biblical counseling can be found in a couple of key passages in Scripture. Colossians 3, 1 through 17, the Apostle Paul exhorts his readers to set their minds on things that are above, on Christ. He says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he goes on to give examples of the kinds or categories of things that need to be put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, deceit. And then he explains at the end of verse 9 that the Christian is redeemed from those practices because they've put off the old self. They've rejected the old sinful ways. They've stopped doing what their old man says. That's the... uh, better understanding of the terminology rather than the old self, it's the old man, but just basically the old pre-redeemed person is is what needs to be put off. Those sins need to be put off. But it's not enough to just put off the old self. What else do we need to do? We've got to put on the new self. We've got to put on the new self, right? We're creatures of habit. And those habits are ingrained and they're hard to break. But those, those, we need to replace those old sinful habits, says the Apostle Paul, with with new habits that are God-honoring, God-glorifying, right? Verse 10 says, Put on the new self, this is Colossians 3, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then he goes on in verse 12 and following to show us what we need to be replacing in those old sinful habits. Because again, we are creatures of habit. We need to replace those old sinful habits with new habits of godliness. He says in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is contrasting to the old self with the idolatry, the anger, the evil desire, the covetousness, the impurity, the immorality, the wrath, the malice. Bearing with one another, he says in verse 13, and and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You think that's useful information to have when we're working with people who are struggling in their hearts? And then in verse 15, he goes on to explain how to do that. He says, by letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, by being thankful, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's some good information. That's worship right there. It's corporate worship. It's private worship. Singing psalms and hymns. Thankfulness in your hearts. How can that possibly help you with your soul care issues? Well, it can help you because you're reorienting your thinking because most of your soul care problems are very, very self-focused issues. They're self-focused problems. And, And every counselor that I've ever met has needed to turn their focus away from themselves and onto, onto the Lord. But they, they're focused, so focused like a laser beam on themselves and their own problems that they forget that God is at work. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle gives us a bit more detail about how we're to accomplish this put-off and put-on process. 
and read this from verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The Gentiles being representative of pagans, of unbelievers, right? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that old self, and and he's talking to Christians, telling believers to put off their old selves, which belongs to your former manner of life, meaning, meaning there's all this stuff in your life that you need to be putting away. You need to put off that stuff. That belonged to who you were before you knew Christ. And he says, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He's given us a lot of detail there. It's a lot of useful information. And I want to make a grammatical point. I'm going to walk on very thin ice here because there's a lot of homeschool parents. And, and my grammar is not the best, but I'm going to, I'm going to, there, there's some, there's some interesting grammar there that you don't necessarily see in the English translations that I want to talk about for a minute, because there's this interesting phrase that's smooshed in the middle of a couple of verbs, a couple of active verbs. The put off is an active verb. It's something you do, right? It's something you do. An active verb is something you do. I make that clear because frequently in counseling, when somebody comes in for counseling, one of the first things we'll do is ask them, well, what have you done about your problem? What have you done about this? And they'll say, well, I prayed about it. They, they, they always say that. I, I prayed about it. And that's good, right? It's good that they prayed about it. And, and maybe they've read God's word looking for answers. That's good. That's good. But they've rarely taken the necessary steps to put off the sinful behavior. You know, they're, they're, they're so overwhelmed by it that they just, they just, they're just letting it go and just accepting that this is a part of, of who I am. You know, I, I've, I've listened to or read and, and seen a lot of lectures, sermons, books, articles on, on pornography, for example. And, and the solution at the end of the day, beyond the hot issue itself, is just stop it. Stop it. It's not that complicated. And they'll say, well, I, I'm addicted to it. I can't. And you get, really? Really? Because when your spouse walks into the room, when you're looking at that stuff, you can bet you can stop it. You know, you're not addicted to that. It's a sin issue. It's a sin issue. They rarely take the steps necessary to put off the sinful behavior. It sounds really simple, but they haven't taken the steps to stop their behavior, their sin. You, Christian, are responsible to put off your old sinful behaviors. And then you have this put on in verse 24. Who's responsible for that? The Holy Spirit, you. You are, right? You are responsible. Again, it's an active verb. You are responsible to, to do something. We need to replace those old habits, like I said, with new habits of godliness. Godly habits. Verse 25 and following, Paul gives us some examples. The liar speaks the truth. The angry person quickly resolves their anger. The thief stops stealing, replaces that old man habit with honest labor. In verse 31, he says to put off sinful hot attitudes and replace them with kindness, forgiveness, and so on. What chapter are you? That's Ephesians 4. I'm making a big deal of this because smoosh right there in the middle of the put off and the put on is what? 
What's mushed in the middle there on verse 23? To be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Guess what? That's not an active verb. That's a passive verb. It's in the passive voice. What do you think that means? Something acting upon you. Something Exactly. It's something acting upon you. It's not something that you do. You cannot renew the spirit of your minds. This is a, it's a renewal process that begins at conversion and continues throughout your life as you're obedient to the word and to the will of God. In Romans 12, 2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not a one-time event, but it's a continual work of the Holy Spirit in the child of God. But you have to surrender to do that. We're going to get into that. You're absolutely right. There, there is still stuff to be done. There's still work to be done. Absolutely. What you ta- we, did, we, we did this as a lesson in training at the jail, this very thing. It was Good. like a light turned on to those people. I mean, I, I have control over this. I can do something. Yeah, you can do something. You can do something about it, absolutely. But this is why biblical counseling is for Christians, because the Holy Spirit is not going to work in your life as an unbeliever to, to help you work through your anger issues. Yeah. Because the Holy Spirit's one mission in your life, if you're, if you're called to be a believer in Christ... The Holy Spirit's one mission in your life is to save you. That's not the, the, the work, the redeeming work, the redemptive work of sanctification happens after salvation. And so you're, you're, the Holy Spirit is working in your life as a believer in Christ. Yeah. And I had a gal ask me, she said, excuse me, but can you help me to stop swearing? And then another gal raised her hand and said, well, you just put a rubber band around your finger and snap it every time you swear. So you condition response, mm-hmm. right? And I said, that might curtail it a little bit. But I said, without being redeemed as a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit to help. There's no heart change. It's no. a heart issue. Right. There's no heart change. You know, no. Stuart Scott talks about the Titanic sinking. And you can rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> the ship's still going down. It's still going, it's down. still going down. Yeah, you can make it look a little better. And we can. And biblical counselors can give unbelievers strategies and tools, relationship tools, communication tools. We can do that, certainly. But at the end of the day, if they're not saved, the Holy Spirit is not doing a redemptive work in their hearts. It's a work of sanctification in their hearts. And we hope that, it's, that he's doing a redemptive work by saving that person. You know, but, but they're not changing the heart as, as the Holy Spirit will with a with believer in Christ. It's the, it's the means of grace that God has given us, it's through the means of grace, that we gain the mind of Christ, Philippians 2.5. And Colossians 3.16 says, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's through regular, frequent prayer. It's through worship of the saints. It's through fellowship with one another. Fellowship is one of those means of grace that God has given us. That we might grow together. Remember COVID? Sitting at home watching church on TV. And how, how, how quickly we lose that sense of fellowship and how, how hurtful that is to our, to our hearts, to our souls, and to our dress code, frankly. We started the very first Sunday. We started, we were dressed for church. We were sitting there. We'd stand during, during the singing. We'd sit down after the singing. And by week three, we were in our pajamas and, and wandering around the house while it played in the background. I mean, that, that's what I was anyway. My wife is much more controlled, self-controlled than I am. So, we, we we need that fellowship. It's inexplicable in a sense, but we need fellowship with godly men and women of the of the church. Doing the one another's of Scripture, we're called to put off our sin and replace it, or put on new habits of godliness. And the glorious key to that process is being renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God has ordained all of our days. And each and every element 
of each day, including the joys and hardships. We become discontent when we fail to see and joyfully submit to God's sovereign hand behind our suffering. And we forget that God ultimately causes every hardship or trial for His good and glorious purposes. Everything God allows or does not allow is inside His wise and sovereign plan. God is perfectly good. But our, our discontented counselee has forgotten that point. That major point. God is sovereignly, perfectly good. Our discontented counselee has forgotten that issue. Or forgotten that truth. God declares that there's a purpose for suffering. There's a purpose for it. We don't try and escape it as fast as we can. In our sinful hearts, we come to believe that we've been wronged somehow. That's what happened with Job eventually. Paulson says that when we become embittered, we're revealing a heart that's being controlled by lies. We come to believe lies. We talked about that last week. God never promised us a life free of suffering, did he? But we come to believe as our suffering continued that he has somehow failed us, either by unjustly or unlovingly, unlovingly causing the suffering or by failing to relieve it. Come to that place where God has forgotten us, perhaps. God is not speaking in the darkness. You don't hear his voice anymore through his word. You don't get the comfort that you got before in, in prayer and in, in worship. And so you come to feel or believe that God has somehow abandoned you to your pain. So then what do we do with, with these discontented or angry or bitter counselees? So first, you know, per Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we work with them to, to put off that old self. Put off the old man, if you will. And there's some sense in which these, are, these events happen simultaneously, but there are stages here to think through. Thinking through working to put off the old man or the old self, the Christian has to learn to be content with whatever God has sovereignly chosen to give to them, right? We need to be content with that. Accepting our circumstances is coming from the sovereign hand of a good and loving God. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was able to praise God even, even in the darkest of circumstances. Losing everything except his life. Job was still able to say, praise God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, his wife. She was a bit of a thorn in his side. Yes, she was. Does acceptance mean complacency? Like we, we, we silently are resigned to whatever God brings our way? No, it doesn't. We don't have to be silently resigned to what God brings to us. But we have to come to the point that we agree with God that his, his purposes are supremely good. We have to come to the point that we're eminently satisfied in him and in his ways. That's why I appreciate John Piper's ministry because he focuses so much on that issue, on that point of being supremely satisfied in God. Mm-hmm. When I, I think there's a deception a self-deception in silent resignation where you tell yourself, like, I'm just going to do what the Lord's asked me to do and I'm not going to worry about anybody else. And that's, I think, where the bitterness can really grow. Because mm-hmm. you're not really being content. Right. Just resigning yourself to, like, this is my lot. This is my lot in life. Right. Yeah. It's that bitter resignation yeah. that festers in the heart that, that, it, that turns into or becomes sin really very, very quickly. First step, then, is to repent of our sin, Right? Identify what the sin is. Sometimes it's not always immediately obvious, but repent of it. Repent of that sin. Seek forgiveness from those against whom we've sinned. 
Sometimes, even oftentimes, a counselee is going to need to be convinced that what they're doing is sinful. They may not recognize that in the moment. They'll come to counseling because they generally have a, an issue. They, they need discipleship. They need encouragement, some, something relatively benign, if you will. But then when you start digging a little bit, you'll start to find these, these more significant sin issues that need to be uncovered and, and talked about and um, repented of. We don't like to acknowledge that we're in sin, right? So sometimes we need a loving nudge in that direction, a little push in that direction. I met with a guy and, and, and he was struggling with terrible anxiety and it never occurred to him that that anxiety could be sinful. Never even occurred. This is a godly man. He's in his word. He's in prayer. He's, he's, he's a godly man, a wonderful man. And it, but it never occurred to him in, his, in that state of anxiety, never occurred to him that that could be sinful. That's all it took. I, I would like to say I'm the best counselor in the world, but I'm not. That's all it took to, to, to redirect him was, was showing him that that anxiety, his anxiety in this case, was, was sinful. Once he realized that and recognized it, he was, he was off, you know, back on tracks and, and rolling along happily. And, and that was, praise God, praise God for that. So the anxiety in that not trusting God and being anxious, I mean, how would you define that anxiety as being sinful just in general? Well, Jesus, Jesus made it clear that we're not to be anxious, right? We'd be anxious for nothing. Okay. Not to be worried, and and th- th- there's a conversation to be had, especially for um, a biological basis for anxiety. You know, people have 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 biological, you know, like hormonal issues that may cause the experience of anxiety, right. and that, that's a more complex situation. We right. we we're talking specifically about sin issues and okay. and hot issues because you know, like depression, like anger, there could be many causes for those things that are that are rooted in a biological issue. That we need to unroot. One of the first things we do if somebody comes and they're just deeply depressed is go to the doctor. Get some blood work done. Find out if there's anything biological going on that needs to be addressed. We can still work with the sin issues, though. There, there may be a biological basis to your depression. I don't know. There might be or your anxiety. But we can still work with you regarding how you're responding to that. And, that, and, and God, you can bet he wants to be glorified even in your anxiety, even if it's biologically based, even if it's a hormonal issue that's causing it. You can bet God wants to be glorified in that. So we can talk about that and work through those issues while you're getting treatment for the hormonal imbalance or whatever it might be. Right? Joy can only be sustainable when it's rooted in a sovereign and righteous God. Our counseling needs to understand that their joy in the Lord transcends their daily circumstances and their own demands. Our joy in the Lord transcends our circumstances so you might think that changing the environment, as a secular therapist would advocate, is the best way to deal with discontentment. But changing goals doesn't address the hot issues behind the discontentment. It's a good goal, for example, to have a better marriage, right? We want to have a better marriage, don't we? Or improve work prospects or more obedient children. But fixating on those goals in order to obtain contentment only exacerbates the contentment because you don't have control over those things. Right? You don't have control over, or you have very limited control, or you may have a veneer or an appearance of control. I can, I can discipline my children when they're disrespectful. Am I changing their heart? Depends on how I'm disciplining them. Right? But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that changes the heart. We have very limited control over circumstances in the lives of the people around us, especially. Our circumstances are dependent on God, other people and ultimately on God. And so 
having the goal of changing or fixing our environment isn't the right place to start. Godly goals must be subordinated to the Christian's primary life objectives, which are to, to glorify God, right, and to grow in sanctification. Changing goals must be subordinated to joyful submission to God and His perfect ways. So discontentment, like anger, is a, is a self-focused sin. And so your, your counselee has to turn her focus to what God's Word has instructed her to believe about her status before Him. Paul says that we're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, unified in the body of Christ, Romans 12.5. And Peter says that we're partakers of a divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. So in order to put off that old self, that, that sin, sinful discontentment, we need to be prayerfully meditating on what God has done to make our new status in Him possible. Lord willing, this will direct your counselee's focus away from herself and onto what God has done for her. Useful passages include Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 4 through 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been unified or united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the new believers, or the believers' identity in Christ. 1 John 3.16, He, Christ, laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Notice the outward orientation of those passages. They're not about you. They're not about you. They're primarily not about us. They're about what Christ has done for us. Our counselees need to turn their eyes off themselves and onto Christ. They need to turn their eyes away from themselves and their difficult circumstances and onto the character of God and what He's done for us. That's why these, these books, these studies on, the, on, the, on, on who God is are so very important. It's so very helpful to study these books. You know, uh, um, and I'm completely blanking on the name of any of them. Uh, you know, Arthur Pink wrote a wonderful book on the attributes. That's the word I'm looking for. The attributes of God is so very helpful to turn our eyes off ourselves and onto Christ and what he's done. Steve Viaz has this wonderful book. I brought it as an object, object lesson. Putting Your Past in Its Place. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Excellent book. I, I had a hard time finding this book. It took me a few months to find it, actually. But now, now they're selling it on Amazon again, which is nice. Steve Viaz, Putting the Past in Its Place, Moving Forward in Freedom and Forgiveness. This book is about guilt. It's about dealing with past issues that are haunting you today. This is exactly what we're talking about. It's really a very, very good book. Section 1, The Power of the Past. Section 2, Dealing with the Hurts of the Innocent Past. Section 3, Handling the Guilt of the Past. How do we handle those difficult things in our past that are causing us troubles today? Really, good book. Recommend it. Meditating, though, on who God is and what He has done and on eliminating negative thought patterns for God's glory is key. 
putting off the old self. And then the second step is renewal, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4.23. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but we, we can engage in activities that help us along, along the way, right? Contentment is found in Christ alone, but not by changing our circumstances or removing the problem that we're blaming for our sin, for our discontentment, because we rarely have the power to unilaterally change our, our circumstances, our goal should, therefore, be intentional pursuit of spiritual growth in the midst of our trials. So guiding the counselee through, through practical meditations regarding discontentment helps them to understand how to best understand God's sovereignty in their circumstances. Does that make sense? I have a handout here. Um, I adapted this from Jeremiah Burroughs' uh, book, The Rare Jewel of, Discontent, of, of Contentment. Not Discontentment. That would be the opposite. That would be a bad book to write. The rare... <laughs> These are meditations for the discontent. It's nine meditations that we can sit in and meditate on as they, with the counselees, um, helping them when they're struggling with discontentment. Can you start over here and, and hand, them, hand them out for me, please? I, I, I uh, adapted it from his book. Don't, it's not scripture. It's just a useful list of meditations that we can do that Jeremiah Burroughs recommended. Read Jeremiah Burroughs' book with them, with your counselee, with the person that you're struggling with. I call him a counselee, but nine times out of ten, it's going to be a friend, isn't it? It's going to be somebody you know and love who's struggling with discontentment, right? So, so read Burroughs' book with them. Thomas Watson wrote another excellent book called The Art of Divine Contentment. Also very, very good, very useful. Meditating on God's sovereignty, what it means. What are the practical ramifications of God's sovereignty? Wayne Mack writes that this strategy helps your counselee to resist the temptation to respond to their circumstances sinfully and to trust those circumstances to their sovereign Lord. Read through Jerry Bridges' Trusting God with, with your friend, with your counselee, with the person you're working with. Drive home the fact that God is in control. He's in control. He's working all things according to the counsel of His will. The Apostle Paul was able to respond positively to trials because he chose to view everything through the filter of God's sovereign love for him. At the end of, sorry, at the end of Galatians 2.20 that you just read, it says, Who loved me and gave himself for me. So all of it is rooted in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's just such a great picture of his crucifixion and how he was raised and that we have that same power. And so... In Ephesians 4, the word put on actually can be raised up or rooted out or to cease. And so, I don't know, I just love that mental image of him being raised from the dead and us having that same power. And so he's now, he has given us that same power to be transformed, which actually motivates us because it doesn't leave us powerless. But when when you've been, that's a great point, when you've been struggling with the same issue for, for, for weeks, months, years, it's a chronic problem. Do you lose sight of the fact that God has given you the power to trans, be transformed, to be redeemed from that problem? You, you sure do. I mean, it's, you, we very quickly come to the point where we feel powerless in a situation. Instead of, instead of remembering that this is, you know, this is, this is how we, this is the process that we can grow through this. And, and God is using this for his glorious purposes. God is in control. That would mean reading the Bible. No, we don't do that in church. No, okay. <laughs> no go ahead. I'm sorry. Second Peter 1, 3 through 7. I won't read the whole thing, but verse 3. His divine power 
has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And then it goes on to talk about, Peter goes on to talk about, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So I think it's a great passage to memorize even for someone struggling with that. We all forget. No, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We're just working it out. He's already given us. It's not like he's promising us one day in the future he's going to give us. Right? That's, that's a past... That's a promise from the past. He has already given us those great and glorious promises. And the key, key word in there, I think, in that text is knowledge. Knowledge. Where do we get knowledge from? From God's Word. We need to be in His Word. And, and much of the time, not for everyone, but a lot of counselees are in the situation because they're not in God's Word. They're not. They're, they'll tell you they are. You know, I'll, I'll ask a counselee, well, how often are you in the Word? And I'll say, well, all the time. Really, how, how often is that specifically? And I'll, and I'll help them along. I'll say, okay, do you think five days a week? Well, probably. Really? What about three days a week? Well, you're, you're, you're in the Word on Sunday, right, at church? Yeah, I, absolutely. I'm reading God's Word in church on Sunday, yes. But they're, 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 you know, when, you, when you're really drilling down, they're not in God's Word much of the time. They're, they're, some of them are, certainly, and they're still lost. And that's, 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 you know, it is what it is, but... Oftentimes, they're not in God's Word. They're not, that's why they're in counseling, in intensive counseling, because they're not doing the things that, that God has called us to, to, to learn, to get that knowledge that we're called to I think just to get. is the surrendering, because the devil has more knowledge of the Word than we do. He certainly does, yeah. And so, and he would put us to shame on knowledge. So surrender is right in there with it. Mm-hmm. Because what good is it if we're not going to listen and obey it? And there's a difference between gnosis and epinosis. Gnosis is, gnosis is head knowledge. Epinosis is a, is a personal, yeah. a profoundly personal experiential knowledge that comes from the experience and submission to, to that knowledge, right? Right. But when you say knowledge, I don't know that people take it as the second one. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's head knowledge. And that's the, yeah. that's the problem that we do have is, is, is studying God's word, but then... But then Living God's word and applying God's word, well, that's a separate step. That's so much harder. It's much more difficult to do. So So we have to fight for contentment by intentionally choosing to give God thanks in the midst of our trials. Paul tells the Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. To the Ephesians, he said the same thing, to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be be made known to God. You can bet a a thankful heart is not going to be a discontented heart. Have your counselee study David's Psalms when when he was in the wilderness, being pursued by King Saul and his own son, Absalom. Horrible circumstances. Psalm 63 is a wonderful psalm on which to meditate to see David's faithfulness, thirsting for God in a literal and figurative wilderness. David's Psalms in particular help us to reorient our minds around God and His great work. They tune our hearts to our glorious God and His sovereign purposes for our lives. Meditating on case studies in Scripture is helpful, especially those ones that are not as as commonly thought through. Jehoshaphat. What can we learn from Jehoshaphat from Scripture? He, He had a coalition of neighboring armies coming in, descending upon him. 2 Chronicles 20 says that there's this, this, gives us this wonderful illustration of how to handle discontentment. 
in Second Chronicles 20, verse 4, you see that Jehoshaphat turns to prayer. It's, it's, he's, un, he's in circumstances that are seemingly overwhelming and hopeless. He turns to God in prayer. And then later in that chapter, he reflects on God's sovereignty. He reflects on the fact that God is in control of these things. And then he turns to him in worship. Doesn't turn to the armory to get more, more, more guns out or whatever it was that they used. Or knives, whatever it is. Don't want to confuse you with my vast knowledge of history. Um, he turns to God in worship. That, that was his response. Prayer, reflecting on God's sovereignty and worship. Go through that that narrative with your with your with your counselee. Help them see, even in the Old Testament, even with this dude with a funny name, you don't hear that name very often. Anyone it's a great name. Jehoshaphat. I mean, just consider. Oh. <laughs> Meditating on. You have 12 more options. There's so many priorities. Just keep pitching. I'll just keep pitching. All right. Meditating on God, on Scripture regarding thankfulness, practicing thankfulness by praising God for His provision in our circumstances, even difficult circumstances, is critical because it reorients our mind and our heart toward a worshipful appreciation and obedience. Probably going to be heavy going for a while because your discontented friend is mired in a whole bunch of bad habits and 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 in hurt and in pain. We understand that it's not a, it's not a simple sit down for ten minutes, smack them over the head with God's sovereignty, and move on. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about meditating and spending an extended amount of time meditating on God. Ephesians five twenty. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.6, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Consider Paul's life post-conversion. He had a tough time of things. He confessed that he felt like he was suffering to the point of death. And yet, when you look at his life, you'll be reminded of God's kindness to him, even in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances. And there's other passages that extol God's glorious goodness. Lamentations 3.22, I love it. The, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Remember that song we don't sing anymore? I love that song. Revelations 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. This is all meditation. We're meditating on God and who he is and what he's done for us. This is the hot work. Working with the Holy Spirit to be renewed in our minds, to reset and reorient ourselves, to better understand and appreciate God's sovereign love for us, his care for us. Consider gratitude, an antidote for discontentment. Practical studies. In, in redirecting our hearts to gratitude in the Lord. Treasuring Christ, Philippians 1, 2. Learning gratitude, Colossians 2 and 3 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Honoring the Lord in our responses, Galatians 5. Desiring God above all else, Philippians 3, 8. And surrendering to God's sovereignty. Our counselees must be able to trust in the sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness of God in all of the circumstances of life. Even the hard ones. If we can get that down perfectly, then we won't struggle with discontentment. So the first one is to put off the old self. The second part is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And then third, we need to work with them to put on new habits of godliness. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.12. I'm racing through, I'm sorry, but I, I don't have a lot of time left. And I've got a good amount of material to get through, so forgive me for that. But What was that reference again? Oh, Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.12. Working with them to put on new habits of godliness. What does God want your counselee to do in their difficult circumstances? He wants her to put on godliness, holiness, 
To do that, there's a need to exercise emotional, cognitive, and behavioral self-control, deliberately considering appropriate, godly, biblical responses. Help your counselor to attune our heart to God's work, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Actively search for God's purposes in the trials and the pain of life. Why is God doing what he's doing? A useful tool I, I use um, fairly often, actually, with, with problems like these, is to have the counselee consider, or affirm, first I have them affirm Romans 8.28, God is working all things together for good for those who love him. Right? And, then, and then we'll drill down a little bit, and I'll ask them, well, what does the word all mean in that verse? And we'll have some fun with it, because people don't usually consider that little word, all, when God's using all things. I ask them, what does that word all include? And they'll say immediately, well, it includes everything, obviously. All encompasses everything. So I'll ask them, so really, does that include the argument that you had with your wife last night? And I'll go, well, yeah. Yeah, it would include that. Well, what about the severe financial challenges that, that make you wonder how you're going to pay your bills or, or, stay, or not lose your home? Does, it, does God use those things too? And I go, well, well, yeah, he'll use those things too. What about those chronic medical issues that... that present significant life challenges. Is God using those too? And they'll go, well, and at this point, they have to be, they have to be intellectually honest and consistent. So they'll, they'll concede, yes, God is using those things too. And these are, this is stuff that they've never really thought about before. They've never applied their personal, they know Romans 8.28, but they've never applied their personal struggle to that word all, right? Eventually, they're going to acknowledge, yes, God even includes those things. And it takes a little bit longer sometimes to get that confession, because I've struck a chord with them. I, I've, I've identified pain points, if you will, that they're holding against God. They're using them against God. And once I get an affirmation that God is using all things, then what I'll do is I'll point them to passages in Scripture to, that describe who they are or who they should be in Christ. So, so we'll look at the fruit of who they, as Christians, the fruit that they should be manifesting in their lives. And I'll ask them to get their wives to help them with it. To identify the areas that they're lacking. And I'll give them some passages. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. The Beatitudes. We'll, we'll list those verses and we'll go through them together. And we'll say, okay, these are the attributes that God wants to see in you. These are, the, these are who you should be in Christ. Now let's list the areas in which you're struggling. If God uses all things in those areas that you're struggling in... God should be using those things to help you grow in these areas, right? So then how is God helping you to grow in these areas? How is God using those specific pain points to help you grow in these areas of godliness? So, for example, we'll go to Galatians 5, and I'll ask them to identify the specific fruit they're lacking. Perhaps it's patience, right? And then I'll ask them to think about how God is using his guilt over past sin, to grow him in patience. Because God uses all things, right? To grow us in Christ-likeness. And, and patience is an attribute of God that we need to be growing in. And if God, if, if he needs to grow in patience, then you can bet God is using painful circumstances to, to that end to grow him in those areas. How is God using your discontentment to grow you in the area of kindness, for example? Think about that. Sit and meditate on, think about how God could be using your pain points, your sin, to grow you in these areas that you've already identified you need to grow in. Yeah, it works. Yeah, I mean, you're dissatisfied with your life circumstances. You're unsettled. Perhaps you're coveting something that you want. How can that help you grow in kindness? 
Think about those things with them. And again, we'll look at the Beatitudes. We'll look at the attributes in Second Peter 1, 5 through 8. And we'll list them. I'll list them in a chart. I love charts. We'll do, we'll do a homework. I do worksheets, homework worksheets. List them out there and, and have the godly attributes on one side and the areas that he's struggling with or she's struggling with on the other side. Match them up. How, how is God using these things? That helps them to, to recognize that God is at work in their lives and that God is using these, these sins, these, these pain points, these difficult things, that difficult person in your life, God is using that person for your sanctification. That's tremendously powerful. The counselee is hurting, aren't they? they? You wouldn't be talking to them already if they're not hurting. They're hurting. They're, they need to spend time searching for God's purposes in the trials and the pain of life. James says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is it First Peter, what chapter, verses 1 through 8? Second Peter 1, oh. 5 through 8. Yeah. Practical strategies are really helpful. Logging specific incidences. Let's say you're struggling with anger or, or you have episodes of discontentment. What was going on when, when you had that? Keep a diary. Keep a journal of what's going on in your life when you had that experience of discontentment. You'll, you'll look for patterns. You know, over, over the weeks, you'll see patterns of, of, of things going on in your life that elicit those sinful emotions or responses. People are generally walking around on autopilot, right? I've noticed that if we can help them to be more circumspect in their lives, circumspect about their behavior, meaning being more thoughtful about what's going on and what's eliciting their sin and how they handle those situations, then we can get to the root of the problem and mortify that sin a lot easier. Does that make sense? We, we, we don't tend to think about why we're angry. We just erupt in anger. Well, let's stop a moment and think about why you are erupting in anger. What are the circumstances that caused that sin to come out? what's going on in your heart? What are you wanting that you're willing to sin to get? And it goes back to that, that, that question, right? An idol is something you're willing to sin to get or you sin if you don't get it. What's going on? What is that idol, that hot idol that's driving you? People are not thinking about that. They don't think in those terms. To help them by being more circumspect, by being more thoughtful when they respond. And eventually, Lord willing, they're going to stop and think before they erupt in anger. And they're going to stop and praise God and for their circumstances before the anger comes. Eventually, that anger is going to be going to be resolved. Yes, I know. <laughs> I have a handout here that I use, a chart that I find to be helpful. This identifies areas in which the counselee is experiencing sin. If you could hand that out, There's, I, I put in a couple on the top there. Um, this handout is a chart that I use that can be used to identify areas in which the counselee is experiencing sin. The counselee recognizes the scenario. And then he has to balance those sinful thoughts with replacement thinking and scripture that honors God. And so on the left column, you've got the, the sinful thought. In the middle column, you've got what, what's, a, what's a righteous, a God-honoring approach or attitude. And then in the right column, there's scripture to back that up. And so I'll, I'll give them the example that you can see there. My, I forget what it is now. What is the example in the left column? My wife doesn't submit to me. My wife doesn't submit to me. That causes discontentment, Right. And, and then what's a, what's a better way of reframing that? Can, Maureen, what, is the, what did I say in the middle column? I want my wife to respect me because I believe I have earned her respect. I work hard for my family and they should respect me for working so much for them. There you go. That's a, that's a sinful attitude toward my spouse, yeah. right? And then, and then we need to reframe that in a way that is more, more positive, more, uh, more God-honoring. So. This is the heavy lifting of biblical counseling. It's hard work. For the counselee who's suffering. 
that your counselee has to put on right thinking by identifying what he's not getting, discerning which rights are being denied or neglected, and they have to turn the matter over to the Lord. The question is, do they believe that to be true? Do they truly believe that God is sovereign and that whatever sinful issues they're dealing with, whatever they're not getting, needs to be turned over to God for resolution, for, for God to deal with? We'll often have to spend a lot of time dealing with or, or, or meditating on God's sovereign care for the counselee because they'll profess an agreement to or a trust in that doctrine of sovereignty, but they'll fail to gladly submit to it in practice. happens all the time. We do it all the time, don't we? We, we, we profess that we believe it to be true, but we don't submit to it gladly and joyfully, even in the difficult things. As with all self-focused sins, the counselee has to turn her selfish thinking around, asking, how can my circumstances glorify God? How can I use difficult circumstances to serve others and to serve the Lord? As with Job, we may never know the purpose of our suffering, but we can trust that even as God loved his son, yet sent him to the cross, our suffering likewise is at the hands of a good and trustworthy God who loves us. If you're a redeemed, if you're a believer in Christ, you can know that God loves you. And if he's sovereignly in control of all things, then you can bet that the all things include all of the suffering that you're dealing with, which is very real, very painful. I get it. We understand that. to be, you know, It hurts. But we also can recognize that God is sovereignly and lovingly in control of that. Jesus shared in our suffering to the point of death, and yet God dearly loved his son. Past sin will often bring painful consequences from the Lord, but those consequences are used by God for his good and glorious purposes. Amen? All right, let me close with some prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the practical steps that you give us in your word. It's easy to, to spell it out in a step-by-step process, but soul care is a much more complicated process than simply checking the boxes and filling in the blanks. We recognize that. We recognize that what can be summarized in a 45-minute lesson can take days, weeks, months, or even years to accomplish in the hearts of your people because we are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And yet you have been so kind to forgive us, to, to, to love us through that. You are long-suffering and patient even with us. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for your long-suffering care and love for us. Father, I just pray that you would help us to work through these issues in our own lives first, that we might be able to then, as Second Corinthians states, we can then comfort others because you have comforted us. So, Father, we just uh, give these things to you. Thank you for them. I would, I would pray for Pastor Phil as he steps up to preach this morning that you would bless the time that we have in your word and in worship, that we may somehow leave this place this morning changed forever as a result of the glorious word that is preached to us. May we apply it in our hearts and in our minds as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen.